So like we said earlier, today is the third Sunday of Easter. Christ is risen. Oh, you got to get used to this stuff. Christ is risen. Okay. I want us, though, to shift gears for a minute and remember Christmas when the train passes. At Christmas, we celebrated the birth of Jesus. Now, try to remember the story. Mary was pregnant. She and Joseph, her fiancé, traveled to where? Anybody? Bethlehem. And they were traveling there because the Roman government needed money for the elites to have luxury and so they could continue to kill people. So they were registering everybody in Israel so they could get the maximum control out of the population and the maximum amount of taxes from them. So Bethlehem was overcrowded because everybody had to go back to their ancestral home and all the people who had moved off and moved elsewhere, they came back to Bethlehem. And because of this, there was no room in the... That's right. There was no... So Mary gave birth to Jesus in this animal stall and placed him in a feeding trough. And there were these angels... And there were shepherds, and there were these wise men, and there was this, you should say, boo, King Herod. Boo, that's right. So King Herod, now, now he was a slippery little dude, right? He told the wise men, hey, find out where this Jesus is because I want to go worship him, but we really know he wanted to go kill him. That's right. And so in a dream, God warned the wise men, don't trust Herod. You got to get out of Dodge. And so they snuck away. Herod gets so mad. One of the saddest moments in all of the Bible, he kills every male child born in the vicinity of Bethlehem because he didn't know exactly where Jesus was, but he thought, well, then I'll just kill all the babies, all the male children under two. And he does this out of his anger and his rage. Now, God had warned Mary and Joseph in a dream, and they too had gotten away before the slaughter happened. That's the story we learn in Matthew and in Luke. That's the story the Gospels tell us, and that's the story we read every Christmas. Revelation chapter 12 is that same story, but told as if it was written by Stan Lee. It's the comic book version. It's the same story. It's just Stranger Things, the upside down world. It's the same story just told from another perspective. In Matthew chapter 12, we have a woman in labor giving birth. But it's not Mary in Bethlehem. It's a woman with 12 stars for a crown, the sun for clothing, and the moon for her footstool. And as she gets ready to give birth, there is an evil thing trying to devour her child. But it's not King Herod. It's a celestial dragon. And he's trying to destroy the child. And he takes it out on everybody else. This is the reality behind the reality. This is the uh, nativity scene that I'm waiting for somebody to start marketing because I think all of the wick lines would buy it. They would prefer this one, dragons to um, sheep. The book of Revelation shows us reality by pulling back the curtain. And the point of Revelation is not that there's an actual dragon or an terms of, oh brother, where art thou, red and scaly with a bifurcated tail. Remember that part? Like it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, look what it says. 
a great sign appeared in heaven. This, this celestial woman. In verse 3, another sign in this dragon. Don't confuse the symbol with reality. Revelation isn't saying there's some giant scaly dragon floating around out there doing things. He's not saying that there's some celestial woman trying to give birth. This is comic book imagery. But it's comic book imagery that points to the reality you'll miss if you're not careful. When Mary was giving birth to Jesus, it wasn't only a hostile and hateful, murderous King Herod. No, behind King Herod, inspiring Herod, possessing and driving him was the devil. And despite our modern hope that evil is simply a lack of education or a lack of choice or hyper-patriarchy or colonialism or whatever safe and domesticated way we want to reduce evil to, there is something behind all of that evil. There is a dark, quasi-personal force in this universe and it is more than just a power. There is behind all evils a conscious, willing, reasoning being who is deadly. In his intentions. And yes, evil can take the form of influences that work through institutions and structures of social life. And yes, it's true that institutions and structures are not evil in themselves, but they can become perverted, they can become demonic, they can become controlled by demonic powers. Perverse traditions and customs and false ideologies and widespread prejudices and patterns of authority and influences of symbols and role models, these things can all come under the power of a deeper, darker, more real evil. The Bible calls all of those manifestations the principalities and the powers. And so all through Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13, we're being shown evil from the comic book perspective, not to make light of it, but to shock us out of our modern sensibilities. There is a war going on. There really is. And it is bigger than the war between liberals and conservatives. And it is bigger than the war between the militant Islamic terrorists and the people of Sri Lanka. There is a war behind all wars. Yesterday, I watched Avengers Endgame with my son Silas. It was his birthday gift to me, and it was wonderful. At one point, now, don't worry, for all seven and a half of you that haven't seen it yet, seems the whole world has, I'm not going to give it up. Um, any, I'm not going to spoil anything critical. But there's this moment where Iron Man, Tony Stark, he says these words, quote, If you told me ten years ago that we weren't alone in the universe to this extent, I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised, but come on. Who knew the epic forces of darkness and light that have come into play? There is more to the evil and suffering in this world than human beings making bad choices. There is such a thing as real evil. There is this nebulous but nevertheless real darkness that exists in our world and this is our real enemy. This is the enemy behind every enemy you've experienced. 
And this enemy is more than you can handle. This enemy is more than a nebulous force. It is suprapersonal, superhuman. It is like Thanos. It is really big, really scary, really powerful. It's a thing that takes over humans as individuals, and it takes over companies, and it takes over governments, and societies, and generations, and cultures. And the modern world has a fundamental incapacity to account for evil in this way. But it's here. And it is larger and more sinister than we have given it credit for. So many of us are so modern and so educated that we tend to sneer at and look down on the cultures that take this kind of evil seriously. That's medieval. That's unscientific. That's uneducated. And that's dangerous. But many of the most serious analysts of the last century have been forced to use this language as a way of trying to get at what's really going on in this world. A striking example is Dr. Faustus, the great and harrowing novel by Thomas Mann, where he's trying to unmask this exact thing. And then there's the fascinating work of the psychiatrist M. Scott Peck, especially in his book, People of the Lie. This is what we're seeing in Revelation. There is a war. Evil is a part of our reality. And notice Revelation chapter 12 verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Two things. If you're a Christian... Do not be surprised when the darkness comes for you. Real darkness. Staining kind of darkness. Don't be surprised when it rises up inside of you or it comes to you from someplace else. And number two, don't think when you are being courted by darkness that it is something to be lightly considered. Because it's a war. And it is a deadly war. Don't think that when you are being courted by some nebulous greed, or lust, or anger, or deceit, don't forget, that's a dragon. It really, really is. And like it says in chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon... That serpent who is called the devil and the Satan, he is the deceiver of the world. Don't underestimate it. So that's the first thing we need to learn from Revelation chapters 12 and 13. There is a divine war going on in our universe and we forget it to our own detriment. Second, Revelation chapter 12 and 13 not only unveil for us the true nature of reality, that there's a war going on, it also unveils for us something else that is almost impossible to see. Who's actually winning? Because it can be very confusing who's winning the war. Notice again chapter 13 verse 7. Revelation 13 verse 7. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. It's easy to look at our world today and to think that the beast is winning. When you wake up on Easter morning and 257 people have been killed in Sri Lanka. When you wake up nine days later and there's a gunman at UNC killing people. All of these moments all around us, it seems like the beast is winning. When you look in your own life, when you look in your own family, when you look at your own history, when you look at the the things you did yesterday or this past week, it is easy to see the victory of the beast. Parents, we raise our children to delight in the ways of the Lord, to believe that God's way is best. But when they look around them, is that teaching reinforced? Psalm 73 is closer to it, right? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The victory of the beast seemed so apparent. How do you get to riches and luxury? How do you win in this world? How do you rise in your company? It seems like the common pathway there is the beast path. Verse 7, Revelation 13, verse 7. The beast has been allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's what we see when we look around us. Isn't that proof that evil is winning, that Satan wins? Every Christian living when this book was written, the early 60s, Asia Minor, they were tempted to see it this way. They were these little bitty, very tiny minority, powerless groups up against the might of the Roman Empire that was totally winning the game. But here's the catch. Go back to chapter 12. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, victory. Now the salvation and the power and the might of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The victory is ours. Christ really has defeated the devil. He really has broken the spine of evil. He really has overcome the darkness. But how do you put these two things together? How do you get from chapter 12, Jesus won, to chapter 13, the beast has power that he's been given to conquer the saints? How do you fit these two things together? Well, before I answer that question, let's just stop for one second and remember. We're learning lessons. Lessons that it takes a comic book to teach us. We're having reality pulled back, the curtain pulled back so that we can see it. Because if we can't see it from the heavenly angle, we misunderstand it. And the first thing we see is that there is a war. And the second thing we see is that the victory is ours. And now we're ready to see the third thing. How is the victory ours? 
the victory of Jesus over Satan happens the same way now that it happened 2,000 years ago. Through the faithful witnesses of those who yield their lives even to death. Notice the rest of chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Now that sounds really good. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is why we're told in chapter 13, verse 7, notice, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Same logic as happened on the cross with Jesus. Satan was allowed to conquer him. Because in Satan killing Jesus, death died. And so the victory continues in the same manner. The way we overcome is when we stare in the face of our killers. And like Jesus, we yield. In Revelation, we see that the martyrs are the victors. That's the reason chapter 12, victory, and chapter 13, death to saints, is the same thing. It's because in Revelation we're told a thing that we don't want to believe. That we don't want to see it this way. This isn't how it plays out in the pages of the world today. The victory of the martyrs in their death is the victory. To be faithful in witness to the true God, even to the point of death, is not to become a victim of the beast. It is to take the field against him and beat him. This is what Jesus, this is why Jesus interrupts the vision. Look in chapter 13, verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Like all of a sudden, in the middle of all this like cosmic comic book war, all of a sudden the narrator breaks in and says, uh, you need to think about this. This is going to be hard to get. You're not going to want to believe this. You've got to. And he uses a phrase that Jesus used all through the Gospels. Whoever has an ear, let him hear. In other words, you've got to really listen to me right now. And then what does he say? If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and the faith of the saints. God's people, though spiritually protected, are not immune from suffering because suffering is the path of victory. As much as we don't want that to be the case, if imprisonment and martyrdom are required in order for us to be faithful to God, then so be it. It is curious to me, as persecution is breaking out around the world against Christians in unprecedented ways, so often when American Christians pray for Christians being persecuted, they pray for their deliverance, not for their faithfulness. Because we have lost a theology of martyrdom. 
we have forgotten that martyrdom is the path of the cross. Now, does this mean we rejoice that people are being killed? No, but it means that our gut inner move, if it's not to pray for them to be faithful, what do you think our gut inner move will be when we are slandered, when we are persecuted? It will mean that we beg God to deliver us because we think only escaping this is the only way to life. If we are faithful to our calling to bear witness to the truth against the claims of the beast, we too will provoke a conflict with the beast so critical as to be a struggle unto death. Could it be that the the pressure we are facing as Orthodox Christians in the world today to stand on the side of God and his views of sexuality and gender, could it be That precious, precocious Americans suddenly have to find themselves where so much of the rest of the world finds themselves. Where standing with Christ provokes a conflict that will not end in our prosperity. Because for his part, the beast will tolerate no dissent from his views. And for our part, there must be no compromise. Now, don't get me wrong. The point of Revelation is not that every faithful Christian will be put to death. No, but the point is that every faithful Christian must be prepared to be put to death. That's the point. Are you? Are you willing to die? Well, let's just scale it back. Are you willing to lose money? Are you willing to lose reputation? Are you willing to be made fun of? Are you willing to lose your rights? Are you willing to lose your comfort? How many times have you compromised? The point is that every faithful Christian must be prepared to die. Martyrdom belongs to the essential nature of Christianity. All faithful witness requires the endurance and the faithfulness that will accept martyrdom when it comes. Isn't this what Jesus told us? Whoever does not take his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But if you want, to, you want to really get life, then you have to lose your life for my sake. If you are a Christian, I want to remind you of what your baptism was really about. We were buried with Christ by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in his resurrection. This whole sermon is me begging you to rise up and act like you've been baptized. Live into your baptism. Your baptism was a burial. Now we have to live like it. Let's pray.